This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. From Guatemala City to Montevideo to Buenos Aires, we have human rights on our mind again this week. But first, Kurt Devine is here with this week's review of news from around Latin America. The U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee approved a bill for comprehensive immigration reform this week. Senators removed a controversial amendment from the bill that would have extended immigration rights to same-sex couples. The 800-page bill now awaits votes on the Senate floor, but it must clear a number of hurdles, including a majority vote in the House of Representatives, before it becomes law. Immigration experts debated the merits of the bill this week at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Former White House Director of Hispanic Media, Luis Miranda, described the social and economic benefits of reform. We are tapping into a great deal of human potential if we give people a chance to actually come forward and fully integrate. That's something that has made the United States um, stronger. Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies, Mark Krikorian, criticized the way immigrant success stories are used to argue for reform. There's going to be some people who are surgeons and inventors and what have you, and some of them are going to be criminals. I don't Using stories like that, for me, doesn't really tell us anything. The bill will likely be voted on in June. Guatemala's constitutional court overturned the genocide conviction of former head of state, Efrain Rios Montt. The court's 3-2 ruling mandates that the trial restart from where it stood on April 19th. The annulment comes in response to unresolved challenges filed by Rios Montt's defense attorney. For now, the guilty verdict and 80-year prison sentence against Rios Montt have been dropped. Catherine Johnson of the Guatemala Human Rights Commission explains what could happen next. The trouble is the same tribunal can't issue a verdict twice. It's sort of a a double jeopardy. And so the case will have to be heard before a new tribunal, which means that the the case will have to start back from the beginning because the, the new tribunal will have to hear the evidence again. What's likely to happen is the the battle will move more to the political and economic levels. Rios Montt was convicted of ordering the massacre of more than 1,700 Ixjil Maya people as part of a scorched earth policy in the early 1980s. Ecuador's only satellite collided with space debris from a Soviet rocket. The Pegasus satellite remains in orbit, but the Ecuadorian space agency, EXA, has yet to determine how the collision might have damaged the satellite. Ecuador launched the Pegasus from China last month and received the satellite's first live video transmission on May 16th. EXA plans to launch a second satellite from Russia in August. Convoys of Mexican troops flooded the western state of Michoacan to rescue villages from the grips of a powerful drug cartel. The arrival of the troops reflects President Enrique Peña Nieto's strategy to protect civilians from violence rather than battling drug cartels directly. Members of the Knights Templar cartel set fire to passenger buses, stores, and warehouses to assert their authority in the region. Top security leaders say the troops will occupy Michoacan until peace is established. With a lack of trust in state authorities, villagers have organized vigilante patrols throughout the region, The government arrested about 40 vigilantes in April for alleged links to competing drug cartels, however. 
Michoacán ranks as one of the states most dominated by organized criminals in Mexico. An extreme shortage of toilet paper in Venezuela may soon come to an end. Venezuela's National Assembly voted in favor of a $79 million credit to import about 39 million rolls of toilet paper. Currency controls in the socialist state restricted its available funds to pay for foreign goods, including toilet paper, soap, and toothpaste. Economists argue the policies of late socialist leader Hugo Chavez have caused shortages of basic amenities since 2003. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. Late last week, Jorge Videla, the former dictator of Argentina, died in prison. He was serving a life sentence for crimes against humanity. Although he retired in 1981, Videla is credited with launching Argentina's dirty war, which claimed as many as 30,000 lives. Videla was 87 years old. The news of Videla's death and the reset of the genocide trial for the 86-year-old former dictator Efrain Rios Montt in Guatemala has us reflecting on human rights again. But this time, we travel to a too often ignored corner of Latin America. That would be Uruguay. Although this program has been back on the net for the past 20 months, we have yet to exclusively feature Uruguay. So we were lucky that Juan Raul Ferreira agreed to come to our studios during his recent trip to Washington, D.C. Ferreira is the human rights ombudsman of Uruguay, a former ambassador to Argentina, and a former opponent to Uruguay's dictatorship, which ruled that country for a dozen years in the 1970s and 80s. Juan was forced into exile, along with his father, Wilson Ferreira, a leader of Uruguay's national party. This program is just the first of a series of three that will feature excerpts from our conversation. You know, you, you can't separate human rights of the past, the present, or the future. But our responsibility as ombudsman finishes at the time that justice starts acting. We have, among other um, uh, powers or responsibilities or uh, provided by law to make penal uh, denunciations that even be part as, as prosecutors in the in the trials but in Uruguay uh, judges are acting with with uh, great independence so there are very few cases linked to the past what is our responsibility is how to deal with the issue of uh, of the past uh, reparation to victims healing wounds well, along Uruguay's history, human rights has been our identity. And during the years of uh, military rule, an, an, an issue that uh, made all political forces converge in the same struggle, unite efforts. So it's very, very dangerous to have an entire generation that associates human rights with arguing, discussion, and division. This is important. One of our responsibilities is make concrete proposals for education programs. Please help us with that because we have many young people that listen to this program too, and they don't know the history of military rule in your country, nor what you personally endured. So I'm wondering what you could share from that period that would be instructive. Well, I was uh, very young, 
19 years old at the time of the coup. So my generation was very shocked because we were educated in the idea of an idealistic Uruguay. Probably that was a problem. You know, we sometimes felt like different than the rest of Latin America, more European-oriented and and sometimes we felt proud of being called, quote-unquote, the Switzerland of South America. But when the hard times came, we found out that our destiny was united not to, to Western Europe, but rather to our neighbors and with countries with which we had little knowledge and, 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 and not very intense bilateral relations. This has changed, among other things, because of the struggle against dictatorships. So I stayed in Uruguay. My father went into exile. He was a political leader, and he went into exile almost immediately. I stayed in uh, a couple of years in Uruguay. I was in prison several times. There was a time when you lose this, the, the the impression that you can do something useful because after you've been eight times in prison, even for short periods of time, well, any meeting you go to, whoever you talk to, you're putting those people in risk and there's very little really that you can do. And at the same time, the last time I was in prison, I felt... Um, in many ways, uh, I could be used uh, uh, as a hostage to, to neutralize whatever my father, who was a prominent leader, could do from exile. So I went into exile in 1975. And uh, the first thing I did when I met my father in Buenos Aires was organize what was like the, the first experience of uh, exile diplomacy, and we visited Mexico, Venezuela, which was very democratic at that time, and we came to the United States. When I arrived in Washington, that made me think a lot. I mean, why would somebody want to kill me? You know, it's as simple as that. So Operation Condor pushed you here to Washington, D.C.? Sure. And uh, Washington, D.C., why? Well, a security city and a place where a lot of work, a lot of political work on human rights. The Chilean situation was very well known because of the dramatic uh, characteristics and because so many scholars and American churches were involved in Chile. So when you when you say that, are we, are we talking about the assassination of Orlando Letelier? Well, I arrived here in June 1976, hearings were conducted about the situation in Uruguay by July 76. On September the 18th, the national date of Chile, since Orlando Letelier had been ambassador here before the coup and subsequently foreign minister, he celebrated, like, it was like the counter-celebration of the official embassy of Chile, a commemoration of the National Date of Chile. And I met him that day, September the 18th. 
Three days after, I just crossed the Sheridan Circle and saw the memorial medal in the place where the car exploded. Now, the dramatic thing was that he was killed. And secondly, that they would dare come to Washington to kill somebody. But let me tell you, in a very personal experience, I really got close to a sense of despair. I mean, uh, my feeling, I was probably 20 at that time, is there's no escape. I mean, I came here, among other things, to feel secure. And I met this prestigious politician, and he's killed in the streets of Washington, D.C. Since it was across the street from the Chilean embassy, the version was uh, they pressed the bottom from, from the embassy. I have to admit, I didn't believe that it was exactly true. I thought it, it was like a metaphor. So I, I went to, you know, pick it and everything, but it, it was like, but it was true. I mean, when the trial happened, it came out that it was from the residence of the ambassador that they pressed the bottom to make the bomb explode. So when I remember Orlando Letelier in a very personal way, I remember the, the tragedy for Chile, for the for, for the struggle of human rights and because then it became more difficult people started you know being afraid of helping and but at the same time I have to remember the great debt of gratitude I have with the American people there were a list of people who wanted to take me to their houses and you know till I recuperated I was shocked Rose Styron, William Styron's wife, who, who, who was uh, at that time chairman, chairperson of uh, Amnesty International, took me to her house for a few days. And, and you can't imagine how important this is uh, to feel you're not alone and no matter how painful a tragedy is, there is a balance because solidarity, love, consideration is present always. I'm, I'm going to tell you a very short story that may, I hope it's, it's, un, it's understandable. When we left Argentina, we had spent hiding for two weeks, then we could get into the Austrian embassy, and then we took the first plane that would take us out of there which was an Air France plane. Now, if, if they had told my, my dad and I that we had to go with the luggage, we would have gone very happily. But we entered the plane, and the captain, the, the commander of the, uh, invited us to, upgraded us to first class. Now, this was not a matter of traveling more comfortable. We will never forget that because we felt for the first time in many, many, many days being considered, being treated. And, and, and this, this it, it, it was not this, I always tried to get upgraded in the airports. This was different. This was feeling you were a human being capable of being loved and understood. 
And when the when we deplaned, he said we're going to fly. The time flight will be four and a half. I don't remember the details. Said Mr. Wilson and Juan Raúl Ferreira, welcome to freedom. For my dad and I, it was we had to make huge efforts so that people wouldn't understand how moved and motion we were. So, so this this is what was my big lesson about human rights. And then, as I said, you know, uh, after the hearings were conducted, my father went to live to London. And only a couple of weeks, he he said he had chosen, I don't know if it's true, but that's the way he said it. He had chosen uh, London because Bobby's did not uh, use uh, uh, guns. I think they do now, but they didn't at that time. And... Three weeks after he was there, he was visited by Scotland Yard because they had detected a threat against his life. So there was this sensation of, you know, solidarity, support, and permanent risk, permanent risk. When we return, Ferreira explains his journey from human rights lobbyist to national ombudsman. Stay with us. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn, indignate, act. This week, Juan Raul Ferreira, the human rights ombudsman of Uruguay, is sharing his tale of how he fought to end support by the United States to Uruguay's military dictatorship. He credits Joe Eldridge, one of the founders of the Washington Office on Latin America, with giving him a start in D.C. Eldridge is now the chaplain at American University. He also credits the late Ed Koch of New York with being a key U.S. politician who cared about Uruguay. Ed Koch is going to remember by the people of New York as a mayor. And maybe in other countries, he was a very famous and popular politician. No doubt in Manhattan, you know. Nobody would ever forget Ed Koch in Manhattan. Now, nobody will forget Koch in Uruguay either. And if you visit Montevideo, Uruguay's capital... You take a taxi and you ask the driver, who is that coach? He's going to tell you. He cut off military aid to Uruguay. Maybe he wouldn't know that he became mayor of New York. In Uruguay, he is the guy who cut off military aid. But but you were the guy who helped ask him that question, weren't you? Well, I was, I think naiveness had had its strength, <laughs> I started uh, knocking doors. At, I said, I, I'm, I'm going to lobby. You know, so I started knocking doors at Rayburn Building, Russell Building, you know, and, and I introduced myself and said, what can I help you with? Well, I'd like to see military aid cut off to Uruguay. You know? And, you know, I got many slums, and sometimes somebody would receive me and take notes. But then uh, Joe Eldridge uh, 
went after me and he found out I had no funds to pay an apartment or, you know, and I was living in very special conditions. He took me to his house and uh, he invited me to work at, at Washington office in Latin America, where he did first as a volunteer, then he helped me raise funds so that I could dedicate professionally. But basically he said, one, you know, this is not the, the, the way you do things up here. And he was my tutor. He he registered me as a as a lobbyer, as a lobbyist. And he taught me how to do it. And he said, Well, if you're interested in Uruguay, you have Congressman Koch who has already been involved in hearings. Uh Congressman Fraser, Tom Harking. Maybe the lack of visibility that Uruguay had made it possible. There were no I mean, this is important for young people to to stop and think about it. Of course, there were no cell phones and there were no computers. So what Koch staff made after the congressman, well, I met with the congressman. He was tremendously warm and a human base. And what they did was get all the letters they had received during the Vietnam War of people protesting against the war, and they would write to these people more than 6,000 letters. They would write to these people and said, please, write to your senator and find people from other states that will write to their senator and tell them, we will pass the amendment in the House. We need that the conferees in the Senate go along with the amendment. But it was, you know, when you look at it in in today's terms, it was very, uh, in Spanish you would say artesanal. But it worked. But it worked. Congressman Koch responds to my father in London, his gratitude, his expressions of uh, support. And he says, um, he says, democracy is not dead in Uruguay. I know two Uruguayans, Ed Koch says in his letter. You and your son, and democracy is alive in yourself as it is in your son. As saying, I understand it's alive in every single Uruguayan. I only know two of them. I've carried that letter with me for a long time. When Ed Koch died, I called Charles Flynn. Thank God he was not at home, and and thank God his answering service or device was very long, so I took off, you know, of myself, sadness, gratitude, emotions, memoirs. And then, you know, this was the beginning of the story. Then we had 10 years ahead, struggling around the world to bring democracy back home. And we went back to Uruguay with the sense that there was a lot of work to do in the United States, because at that time there was an enormous amount of not only economic and military, but but moral and political support to these regimes in in Latin America. I have to say, not not because I consider it best or or worst, but but because it's a fact and it, it can help understand how these regimes operated. Um, My family is not a leftist family. It it could have been, but but it wasn't. I mean, uh, 
come from a conservative party. But uh, the tradition in Uruguay is that all parties are committed to the rule of law. And the rule of law is not leftist or rightist or centrist. It's, it's, you believe in it and respect it or you don't. Period. You believe in the Constitution. Right. I, had, I was involved in politics afterwards. So I was partisan identifiable. Uh, I was a congressman, a senator, very young. Then a party, which was not my party, sent me as ambassador to Argentina for five years. Argentina is for Uruguay the most important embassy. Less than a year ago, uh, I was uh, elected by uh, unanimous consent, which, which is very encouraging to do the kind of hard, difficult work I have to do to, to represent such a broad uh, consensus by, by Congress, the, the joint session of Congress, as Uruguay's first ombudsman. This is a new institution which has three main responsibilities. Ombudsman in the most broad sense of the word, um, human rights institution according to the principles of Paris of the United Nations, which means an independent uh, controller and monitor of human rights standards uh, in all policies, social, economic, cultural, uh, in, in, in a way, it's, it's, it's hard to explain because um, it's an official position, but I'm not part of the government. I never thought about, you know, uh, making my, my, my new life project around this issue because I looked at myself as, a, as a, if I could be identified as two partisan, although I had uh, quit uh, public and political life for a few years. But maybe because of this pass, Congress, after two days of uh, private deliberations, came out with Fumata Bianca. And uh, so I was really shocked when I found out that there was this unanimous consent. And one of the most, one, this speaks uh, very highly of, of my own country, and I like to speak highly of my own country. All the other 36 candidates were the first people to congratulate me and to offer their support. And they have been very supportive. But uh, as I said, you know, we, we had to build an institution. The bill established that for the three first months, we could just sign checks. But my feeling at that time is this is a new institution. Let's try to to make it a model institution. So for three months, we didn't spend a single cent. I took my own coffee for coffee breaks. So the United Nations was very helpful. They sent me advisors, experts on how to identify the needs for the first year and how do you transform that in a document called budget proposal. We, since we didn't have money, we started asking different uh, um, government offices to, to send us personnel. 
so that we didn't raise public spending. But And this was also very moving because some of the professionals that came were to gain less money after the budget was approved than they were winning in the, their jobs. And some were the best qualified in, in the different ministries or, or offices. So, so it's very clear that the institution has, from the very beginning, created mysticism. People go there not to a job, but to develop a, a vocation. In the coming weeks, we'll hear more from Juan Raul Ferreira, the human rights ombudsman of Uruguay. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Musica Q. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to respond to this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. The program is produced at the university's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV with additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions.